You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Welcome to History of the Great War, Episode 87. This week, a huge thank you goes out to Jensen for choosing to support the podcast on Patreon. You too can help make this show happen over at patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar, where you can unlock access to special members-only episodes. Last episode saw the launching of the Brusilov Offensive on June the 4th, 1916. Over the next week, the Russians made great advances along the front, but they hoped that it was just the beginning. One thing that did not go off as planned was the attack that Evert was supposed to launch to the north of Brusilov's front. Evert had more men, more guns, and more supplies, and was supposed to be the primary point of effort for the Russian army. We will start this episode by discussing why his attack did not happen until far later than expected, and then what happened when it finally did kick off. We will then roll into the next set of attacks by Brusilovs on his part of the front. These efforts will be in the direction of a town called Koval, which will play a large role in the rest of our episodes on the Eastern Front in 1916. The initial attack in Koval's direction had a disappointing result. But before Brusilov could launch another attack in July, he had to bring more men into the line to make good his losses from June and those losses from June would prove to be very difficult to replace. The attack by the Russian Western Army Front, under the command of General Evert, was a story of delays and postponements for the entire month of June. It was quite clear that while the plan called for him to make the primary Russian effort, he simply did not want to attack at all. He had 750,000 men, far more than Brusilov had to his south, he also commanded two-thirds of all of the available Russian heavy artillery, but this made no difference. His initial plan was to attack in the area of Lake Narok again, and this was originally scheduled to go forward on June the 1st, which is also when Brusilov was supposed to attack. However, just a few days before the 1st, Evert decided that it was not an appropriate place to attack and instead changed his mind and wanted to make the center of his front the main point of effort. This was far to the south 
of Lake Narok. It was this change in plans that caused Brusilov to move his attack back four days to June the 4th, as we discussed last week. Evert, though, would need far more than a few days to change the entire direction of his army, and he postponed the attack until June the 14th. If this date would have been held to, it would have meant that Evert would have attacked just as Brusilov's men were starting to really bog down, and it might have been able to keep the defenders off balance. However, two weeks just was not enough time to move the troops and equipment down from their area around Lake Narok to the new area of attack. When June the 14th arrived, Evert still did not attack. On that day, he contacted Alexiev and said that he would have to postpone the attack due to bad weather. This delay pushed the attack back until the 18th. When that date arrived, Evert again contacted Alexiev, and now he had a new excuse. This time, Evert claimed that the Germans had caught wind of the attack and had shifted large numbers of troops into the area, including large amounts of artillery. With these new facts in mind, and by the way, they were actual facts, the Germans were doing these things, he again requested a postponement to allow for the attack plan to be adjusted, and this date, this delay would push it all the way back into July. During all of these conversations and delays, Brusilov was kept apprised of the situation, and he, of course, was not happy. He made it clear to Alexiev that he believed that the inaction of Evert was costing his army and Russia as a whole huge opportunities. Brusilov did not entirely blame Evert, though. Instead, he blamed Alexiev, Evert, and even Kuropatkin, the commander of the far northern Russian army. All of them were being complacent, all of them were to blame. In his memoirs, Brusilov would say that, quote, I was well aware that the Tsar himself bore no guilt, because he was a mere amateur in military affairs. Alexiev grasped very well, though, how the situation had developed and how criminally Evert and Koropetkin conducted themselves. Had another military man stood at the head of the Russian army as supreme commander, Evert would have been dismissed without delay for his po- from his post for his indecisiveness and Kuropatkin never would have found a place in the active army at all." Brusilov was not the only one feeling the effects of Evert's constant waffling. The men under his command found out in early June that the plan for the attack had been completely changed to a new area, and they had just two weeks to plan for it. These types of large attacks took even the best staff officers months to prepare for, They were not at all assisted by the fact that their maps were horrible. Their guns were not even in the area, let alone registered onto targets. There had been little aerial reconnaissance of the German positions, so even if the artillery could hit an exact target, they did not know where the target was. They only had the vaguest idea. All of these were piled on top. Oh, and also, the infantry had no time to move their trenches forward to try and close the gaps between the lines. Brusilov had started all of these types of preparations months ahead of his attack in June, and here another army was trying to do it in just two weeks. I'm sure there was very little sleeping happening for those staff officers. A thousand guns were available, but with no time to prepare, their strength was mostly wasted. Even with all of these problems, though, on July 2nd, 24 infantry divisions went over to the attack. To meet them, the Austrians and Germans had put most of their men in the second line of trenches, 
which kept them pretty much completely safe from the initial artillery bombardments. For the first day, most of the fighting took place in front of the second line of trenches. In fact, even when more Russian reinforcements were sent forward late in the day, they were still only able to capture the first line of trenches and were stopped cold by the primary line of defense. While they were not able to break through the line, they were able to grind down the Austrian troops opposite of them. These troops had taken the brunt of the attack and were in a pretty rough spot. They had taken a lot of casualties while fighting off the Russian advances, and seeing this, to his north, the Prince Leopold of Bavaria, who commanded the neighboring German 9th Army, sent a German division to help them. He also sent some artillery. With this help, the Austrians were able to stabilize their front and fully put an end to any Russian advances. The attacks would continue for a few more days, until they finally wound down on July the 4th. They did manage to launch one more attack on July the 8th, but it was just as unsuccessful as the earlier efforts. With Evert's effort now over, the Russians had lost 80,000 men, while the defenders had lost just a fraction of that. The attack had also used, in the week that it lasted, more artillery ammunition than Brusilov's entire month-long effort from June, which is a bit mind-blowing if you think about it, considering how little it accomplished. With it very clear that Evert was getting nowhere, Alexiev began to divert all reinforcements and replacement troops to Brusilov in the hopes that he would be able to get his front going again. With Evert's effort now over, let's flip back over to the other side and talk about Conrad, Falkenheim, and the fight for control of the Eastern Front. Conrad had to fight for Falkenheim to send him assistance. He pointed to how many men the Austrians had lost and how close they were to losing everything. And this and other arguments started to get the ball rolling, and the first German reinforcements would arrive on June the 7th. This was not out of pure generosity, though. The Germans were just in a position where they had to make sure that the Austrians were not completely destroyed. These four divisions were sent by Falkenhayn from the Western Front, not because this was Falkenhayn's first idea, but because Ludendorff certainly was not going to let any of his troops go from the northern end of the Eastern Front. Falkenhayn probably could have overruled him, but the German chief of the general staff did not have the power that he once did, and Ludendorff was able to point to the large number of Russian troops opposite him as a good excuse to hold on to what he had. These first German troops and the next 14 divisions that would come over to the east over the course of the next few months did not come without strings attached. The first of these strings was that General Linsingen had to be put in command of not just his German army, but also the new reinforcements, and also the Austrian First and Fourth Armies. With this request, Falkenhayn was determined to make sure that any effort, in this case a possible counterattack, was fully under the command of a German general. That was just the first of the strings, though. Just a few days later, Falkenhayn requested that Mackensen be put in command of all of the Eastern Front from the Pripyat Marshes, where the German command ended, to the Dniester River, way down by the Carpathians. This was too far for Conrad to go along with. Putting so much of the Austrian army under the direct command of the Germans was essentially turning in his command card. He was able to talk Falkenhayn down to just putting a German, Major General Hans von Siecht, as Chief of Staff of the 7th Army, 
Although Lincingen would still get the first and fourth Austrian armies, he, there would still at least be Austrian armies led by Austrians. While Falkenhayn agreed to this, his attempts to grow German power in the east did not stop. Part of this effort was to spread German reinforcements out along the front, instead of under one specific commander. On the surface, this might seem like an altruistic effort. It provided to all of the hard-pressed Austrian armies some help. However, what it really did was give the Germans a bridgehead into every army and corps of the Austrian army. Over time, as the German and Austrian troops fought together, and as the Germans per- continued to perform at a higher level, it would give Falkenhayn an excuse to increase German power, just here and there, until it was everywhere. These efforts would continue until Hindenburg was put in command of everything in the east. This meant that his command would stretch from the Baltic all the way down through Poland and to the borders of the 7th Army in Galicia. To the south of the 7th Army would be the final refuge of independent Austrian command on the eastern front. But even this was something of a lie. This area was technically under the command of the Archduke Karl, but in reality, it had General von Siecht as his chief of staff. And in the German model, much like with Hindenburg and Ludendorff, the chief of staff had an enormous amount of power. There was one final string that Falkenhayn attached to his troops, and that was about Italy. Even though Conrad believed that Italy would be a decisive factor for Austria, he had to give it up when Falkenhayn agreed to send troops. Although I guess he really didn't have a choice if he wanted German help, so I'm not sure he had, had to agree with it, he just sort of had to go along. The Austrian troops who had been attacking in Italy were told to pull back to a defensive line to the north, and two and a half divisions were taken off that line and dispatched to the Russian front. The hope was that, once these troops arrived, they could be joined up with the German troops coming from the west, and this would give Linsingen an army of around seven divisions that he could use to launch a counterattack. This would be the plan, and they would put it into action, but not before Brusilov launched another round of his offensive. This next attack was launched on June the 14th, which if you remember was the second time that Evert was supposed to attack but did not. Brusilov did not wait for him, though, and instead went forward with his plans. The main area for this new attack would be with Kaladin's 8th Army, which would be reinforced by two corps, and they would be used to attack towards Koval. There would be two other attacks as well, by the 3rd Army to the north and by the 11th Army in the south. These two attacks were designed only to make sure that the Austrians and Germans could not move reinforcements into the area of Kaladin's attack when he went forward. The attack of the Third Army would end up being a disaster, even though the Russians had a manpower advantage in the realm of 5 to 1. The biggest problem was that the Third Army had only recently been given to Brusilov and had not had time to properly put his tactics into place. This meant that when they did attack, they looked far more like Evert's efforts in July than Brusilov's efforts at the beginning of June. 7,000 casualties later, the Third Army had accomplished almost nothing. The Germans had lost only a few hundred men. When Kaladin in the center went forward, unlike the complete success that his men had had during the initial attack, they rapidly began to slow 
The Austrian troops in front of the attack, even though they had been hit hard during earlier fighting, were able mostly to hold their ground. The Russians attacked multiple times throughout the day and in many different areas, but to no avail. Fortunately for the Austrians in this area, and part of the reason for their strength and resistance, was that they had German reserves that they could fall back on if needed, and more importantly, they had German artillery on their side supporting them. Even though they had done well throughout the day, these Austrians still decided to retreat to the next line of defenses, but this was a strictly voluntary effort, and was done in an organized fashion, not like previous routes. This gave the advantage of being able to relieve the pressure on their line for the time being, which was good, because the Austrian 4th Army was rapidly running out of men, and they were far from out of the woods. On June the 20th, Linsingen was finally able to catch his breath and begin to use the troops that he had available to them, which at this point was several German divisions who had arrived from the west, and some Austrian troops from the Italian front. He would use these men to launch a counterattack, and soon. Unfortunately, the initial efforts would not see much success. They would take some ground and some Russian prisoners here and there, but they failed to achieve anything groundbreaking. Part of the problem was that the Russians were still launching attacks themselves, and Kaladin and Linsingen were basically just hitting each other back and forth for the rest of June. Both men still believed that these attacks could be a success and the enemy was reeling and could not possibly continue, but both were wrong. For the next 10 days, this back-and-forth slugfest continued, with the Germans attacking one day while the Russians would attack the next. The only thing accomplished was to wear down the reserves for both sides, which was a failure if you were looking at it from the German perspective. Linsingen squandered what could have been one hell of a trump card if he had just waited for the full complement of troops to arrive to his command, he could have hit the Russians hard. Instead, he did not allow his strength to fully concentrate, and he dissipated it in a series of poorly prepared attacks. It may also have been much worse, too, if the Russian troops were not already exhausted and so far from their bases of supply. As it was, the attacks in front of Koval just sort of went on, with attacks launched all the way into June, by which point another major effort would be launched by the Russians. The only positive thing that I have to say of these German and Austrian attacks is that it prevented Kaladin, with the strongest collection of forces on the southwestern Russian front, from making any progress. But they probably would have stopped the Russians regardless of whether or not they attacked. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Before we jump into the next set of Russian attacks, I think it's appropriate to take a moment to discuss the state of the Russian army. I've spent more than two years and 87 episodes talking about how badly the Russian army was doing, 
but now it's time for them to finally right the ship, at least for a while. Historians, and then myself, are not the only ones who have noticed the changes that were happening inside the Russian army after the first wave of successful attacks in June. In fact, even the German commanders would recognize what was happening. Here is Lintzingen, quote, Just to show the Pickelhaub, the distinctive spike atop the German infantry helmet, over the top of the trenches, was no longer enough to strike fear and horror into the Russians. End quote. The Russian soldiers also noticed this increase in confidence and in success, and that just upped their confidence even more. A British news correspondent would compare the Russian troops around the city of Lutsk and what he had seen the previous summer during the retreat from Warsaw. Quote, from not many miles away, by night and day, comes an almost uninterrupted roar of heavy gunfire, and all day long the main street is filled with the rumble and clatter of caissons, guns, and transports, going forward on one side, while on the other side an unending line of empty caissons returning, mingled with wounded coming back in every conceivable form of vehicle. And in among these at breakneck speed dart motorcycles carrying dispatches from the front. The weather is dry and hot, and the lines of the road are visible for miles by the clouds of dust from the plodding feet of the soldiery and the transport. As the retreat from Warsaw was a review of the Russian armies in reverse, so is Lutsk today a similar spectacle of the Muscovite armies advancing, but now all filled with high hopes, and their morale is at its highest pitch. End quote. This increase in confidence and morale, while always helpful, did not make all of their problems go away, and the biggest problem was simply the number of casualties that they had sustained in over a month of hard fighting. Since June the 4th, Brusilov had lost hundreds of thousands of men. Sure, there were more warm bodies to replace those that were lost, but these men had been given weeks and months of special training before the attack. The new replacements would not have the same level of training and ability. What he was now getting was either raw recruits straight from basic training, often without any combat experience, or he was getting cast-offs from Evert and Korpetkin. While in previous years these two commanders had hoarded their men jealously, they now gave them to Brusilov by the thousand. It is likely that they did this so that their fronts would not have to join in the attack. In total, two corps from each of the other fronts found its way to Brusilov in the south. Brusilov would also receive another form of reinforcements, although in this case they would not be raw recruits or castoffs, but instead the men of the special army, and in this army were the imperial guards. The guards had been created way back by Peter the Great, who, much like other European monarchs at that point in history, had chosen only the largest and tallest men in his army and put them into one unit. This unit would receive special training, and they were all over six feet tall, and you can't teach that. The first 18 months of the war had not been kind to the guards, and after the retreat from Poland, they had been taken off the line. Behind the front, their ranks had been refilled, and they had been given new and more rigorous training. When the guards were given to Brusilov, he found that it was not the men or their morale that were the problem. In fact, both were top-notch. Instead, the problem was their commanders. 
The guards, being the prestigious unit that they were, attracted a special kind of officer. It was seen as a great position to put royalty, men of the court, or relatives of influential Russians as a way to get them military experience and maybe a couple of medals. Because of this, it was generally connections and family name that were most important, rather than silly concepts like skill and competency when it came to who was getting promoted inside the guards. Here is Brusilov giving his judgment of the men in charge of the Imperial Guards. Quote, the commander of the Special Army, the General Adjutant Brezubrazov, was an honorable and upstanding man, though of limited understanding and unbelievably stubborn. His chief of staff, Count Ignatiev, knew absolutely nothing about serving on a staff and had no idea of staff work, regardless of the fact that he had graduated from the General Staff Academy with honors. The chief of artillery, the Duke of Mecklenburg-Schwerin, was a good man at heart, but had only a very vague concept of the role of artillery, though the use of artillery had grown vastly in importance, and there could be no more success without the meaningful support of the artillery. The commander of the First Guards Corps, Crown Prince Pavel Alexandrovich, overall a very sensible and doubtlessly personally courageous man, understood absolutely nothing of military affairs. The commander of the Second Guards Corps, a clever and well-versed man, had a difficult weakness for a soldier. His nerves gave out as soon as shots were fired, and in danger he lost his spirit of resistance, and it was no longer possible for him to lead. End quote. So as you can see, he was not a huge fan of what he had to work with here. He requested that Alexiev allow him to replace the men that he found incompetent, but it was not possible for several different reasons. It was only the Tsar who could arrange and authorize a change in the guard, since they were technically his personal bodyguard and under his personal command. Alexiev refused to even ask him to let Brusilov do this, because Alexiev saw it as an implicit questioning of the Tsar, since it was the Tsar who had appointed the men in the first place. Therefore, when the time came, the guards would be committed with the commanders that they had, and the results would be less than spectacular. As Brusilov looked around the front at the end of June, he wanted to keep attacking, but the question was where to do it. He kept looking around, and then he kept coming back to Kaladin's 8th Army, and the move towards Koval. However, while his eyes kept wandering there, he was also continuing to shrink his front down, and this time, instead of three armies attacking, it would just be two, the 3rd and the 8th. This is seemingly the first time that Brusilov starts getting a lot of negative reactions from historians. Now, whether or not this is because Brusilov was wrong in shrinking his front, or just because the attack was not entirely successful, is up for debate. Who knows what would have happened if he would have attacked everywhere again. What is known for sure is that now Brusilov was the point of decision for the entire Russian front. He had a basically blank check from Alexiev and he would use it when launching the two armies into the attack. He would place the Special Army, now bolstered with other troops and deemed the Fourth Army, in reserve to exploit any success that was hopefully about to come. 
With all of these troops combined, he had 250,000 men, giving him a better than 2 to 1 advantage in the area. Brusilov's southwestern front had also been given enough men in total that its advantage in manpower had actually grown since the beginning of the attack, and it now had almost a 300,000 man advantage over the defenders. Brusilov also had an increased ammunition supply, and he began to put it to use at 4 a.m. on July the 4th. This bombardment once again created an amazing amount of dust that almost completely blinded the defenders. This prevented accurate defensive fire, and allowed the Russian troops to almost be on top of the defenders before the fighting really started. The Austrians and Germans were almost instantly forced to retreat, and gaps began to open in the line. Linsingen became very concerned about his entire front, and instead of trying to piece together reinforcements, he just decided that the entire front should retreat. While in some ways this movement was voluntary, In many ways, it was not, because it was at this point that something began to happen, and reports of it started to trickle up the chain of command. This is an event that had never happened in any large scale on the Eastern Front. And in fact, many Germans believed it to be completely impossible. These reports stated that German units, not Austrian, fully German units, were beginning to lose their ability to mount cohesive defenses, not because of the numbers against them or the overwhelming Russian force, but because of a lack of morale, a lack of confidence. By recognizing this problem, Lensingen was able to retreat his army to another line of prepared positions, in at least some kind of order. With the vacuum now in front of them, Brusilov ordered the 3rd and 8th armies to continue to push forward. He hoped that he could follow the defenders close enough so that another attack could be launched before they were settled. Unfortunately, due to the slowness of the Russian advance, by the time they reached the new defensive line, the troops were already settled in and were now waiting. Not wanting to waste any more troops, the Russians paused to allow for a bit of regrouping to happen before they tried again. While the Germans in the north had been able to disengage successfully, and now things were looking okay, in the far south it was a different story. I've not talked about the southern end of the front very much this episode, and this was because there had not been a ton of extra troops, or any at all really, sent down there. The southern end was also not a real focus for Brusilov in July. The attacks had continued, though, all the way from June, and on July the 5th, they managed to achieve something. It was on this day that the Russians of the 9th Army launched another attack against Plaflanzer Bolton's beleaguered men. The Russians hit the Austrian line, and after a strain of a month of fighting, it just shattered. With all the fighting around Koval, the southern end of the Austrian front had been just as neglected as the Russian side had been. Few reserves were available, and the Austrians were basically, what they had were divisions on paper in the line, but they could have been mistaken for regiments or even smaller units. For the Austrians, it was nearly a disaster. All along the front, the Austrians had to retreat. It nearly became a complete rout, and it was only the fact that the Russians were overextended, with so many of their resources in the north, that saved the Austrians an even greater defeat. While the attack slacked off, another huge block of Austrian territory had been lost. 
But Flanzer Bolton simply reported back that if he did not receive reserves, he would have to continue his retreat all the way into the Carpathians, and maybe beyond, into Hungary. Linsingen was then forced to send men south, cancelling out any ability he may have had for a counterattack. There was simply no choice. And behind the line in France and in the north, German men boarded trains with one destination. Brusilov had lost another 500,000 men in five, four days of fighting between July 4th and July 7th. But he had done the thing that every ally had been screaming at him to do, and every ally had been screaming at Russia to do since 1914. He was pulling in Austrian and German troops, not by the battalion or the regiment, but by the division and the corps and the army. But he was not satisfied with this. There were more attacks to launch, more ground to gain, maybe even a victory to take. And we'll talk all about that next episode.